0: Disperse immediately or you will be subject to arrest. (laughs) Nothing but a thief on a time loan 128 been war you play Nintendo On some shooters so put the bridge down Or feed us to the killer bees We get what we deserve life Bury me with my MP3s Write my manifesto in 72 DPI Life's just a game you got cheated never learn. I write these songs every bridge that ain't been burned For every cop car that
1: ain't been Welcome. This is America, January 18th, 2022. On this episode, we speak with a student involved in organizing ongoing strikes in the Oakland Unified School District. We talk about the spread of Omicron throughout schools, the impact of sick-out actions by teachers, and how students began to self-organize to issue their own demands and push for schools to close as the variant has surged. We then switched to our discussion where we address the importance of the latest round of strikes as they present a direct response from below against current conditions which rejects the policies of both major corporate parties that are pushing for the reopening of workplaces and schools at the expense of people's lives. All this and more, but first, let's get to the news. Protests by tenant unions and other organizations kicked off in New York after a moratorium on evictions was not extended. Protesters hit the streets, people held rallies, burning their eviction notices, and also banners were dropped demanding an end to evictions. As Brooklyn Eviction Defense wrote in the Brooklyn Rail, there are currently 223,883 eviction cases pending in New York City. Even if we were not still mirrored in the global pandemic that is killing millions with no conclusion in sight, even if that pandemic was not surging locally yet again, and even if we're not in the winter months when evictions are particularly devastating, the reopening of evictions would be a gruesome act, as all evictions are violence. This is in no small part because of the city's conditions, its decrepit infrastructure, the policing of public transportation, the city's wanton war on the poor and houseless, the 10-year waitlist for NYCHA, the state of shelters. All of this ensures that evictions are an acceleration of enduring marginalization. The looming eviction crisis will be disproportionately black-brown and made up of women. Resuming legal evictions is genocidal class warfare. Also in New York since last Friday, hundreds of prisoners at Rikers Island have been on hunger strike, protesting conditions such as lack of healthcare and access to other services that have persisted since last year due in part to the COVID-19 pandemic and a lack of staffing in city jails. Over the past year, more than a dozen inmates have died in custody, violence has increased, and the backlogs in the courts due to the pandemic have kept people behind bars for longer periods. Turning to Asheville, North Carolina, according to the Asheville Blade, police officers continue retaliation for camp eviction protests and just announced the arrest of three people, claiming absurdly that art supplies left in a park where demonstrations were organized counted as, quote, felony littering. The arrests are in response to ongoing protests against continuous sweeps of houseless encampments in the city. Mass walkouts continue across the U.S., as student organized strikes took place this week in Chicago, Boston, and beyond. Students are demanding rapid testing kits, PPE, and a return to online instruction in the face of the surging Omicron variant. See your updated roundup in our show notes for more worker and student action reports. In so-called Atlanta, Georgia, people protested AT&T for their role in funding the Cop City Project, which threatens to destroy the Atlanta forest. And finally, resistance at the Winnemucca Indian Colony continues, as land defenders remain committed to supporting elders who are fighting eviction and facing down a variety of law enforcement and local goons, attempting to remove them. Check our show notes for ways to support them and donate to frontline defenders. And finally, if you value its going down as autonomous media resource in times of crisis, please go to itsgoingdown.org/shop. Again, that's itsgoingdown.org/shop, and sign up to become a monthly supporter or give us a one-time donation. You can also follow our RSS feed, check us out on the radio, follow us on social media, and also if you enjoy this show, check out other shows on the Channel Zero Anarchist Podcast Network. That's going to do it for us today. As always, enjoy the interviews and the discussion, and we will see you soon.
2: Hello, I'm Blue, and I'm a student at OUSD.
1: And that's Oakland Unified School District, correct? Yes. So tell us what made you get involved in this? What's going on that's happening that made you just need to do something around this?
2: Our school campuses right now, it's very easy to catch COVID. A lot of kids have been testing positive, and a lot of students are afraid for their teachers themselves and their families and their community. So we just decided to start taking matters to our, old, our own hands since adults aren't doing it themselves.
1: When you say adults aren't doing it, what, what do you mean by that?
2: Well, before our strike, we didn't have the masks we needed. We didn't have outdoor spaces to eat when it rained, so we weren't, like, just bunched together together in the cafeterias. And we didn't have a lot of the equipment that we needed to stay safe at schools. So we just started striking and telling the adults how what we needed and they finally listened. So
1: When you say a lot of a lot of kids have been getting sick, can you describe that as it just people like testing positive or kids are getting sent home because they don't feel good or it's just like obviously spreading amongst kids or just kind of tell us about what it's like day to day.
2: Obviously it's like a case by case thing. COVID doesn't affect all teens differently. But personally, I did get sick and I did have long COVID and other kids are asymptomatic. So they don't have any symptoms at all. But either way, if you're testing positive, you're probably spreading COVID as well. So even if they aren't feeling sick, If you spread it to another kid that will get sick or a kid that has a vulnerable family member, that's just as dangerous.
1: I know it's been like a short period since kids have been back and then there's been stuff that the teachers have been doing, there's been sick outs, and then you all have been organizing. How have the teachers in this period responded to it? Have they been talking to you all about what's going on? Like has there been a back and forth between the teachers and the students about how bad this is?
2: Well, most teachers that I've spoken to Have been extremely supportive. Um, all not only in OUSD but all across the country, even in other countries, who I, people who have reached out to me with support. So I do know teachers have been supportive. They did do their own strike as well, but this, um, strikes these strikes that we've been doing ourselves is more student oriented.
1: Did the actions of the teachers in Oakland and San Francisco, was that like, obviously you all are doing this on your own, but like, did that help kind of like inspire you all to take action too? Or what kind of factor did that play into what you're doing?
2: I feel like it made more kids less afraid of doing their own strike just because we saw the bravery of our own teachers who were doing this not only for themselves, but for us as well. And I think most kids just started thinking, oh, if the teachers can do it, why can't we?
1: And then just kind of like walk us through like what's been happening with the students because you all have set demands, which you already kind of went over a little bit. And then it seems like you were saying that those have starting to um been met. I believe the last thing I read in the newspaper was two of the demands have been met, but yet you all are still going on strike on Tuesday, correct?
2: Yes. Well, The thing is, we're going on strike not because we're trying to put pressure on the district. We understand there's a test shortage. We are very grateful for our district and what they've done for us. We do understand that they've been doing their best, but it's still not safe to come to school if we don't have the testing available. So we're not doing, we're not continuing our strike to put pressure or To just criticize our district, we're doing it just because we still feel unsafe.
1: But you feel that definitely the actions that you all have taken push the district to supply you all with, sounds like PPE and masks and other things that you've been asking for?
2: It only started happening after our strike, so a lot of kids have been seeing the pattern, you know? And I feel like it should have been done a long time ago, but I am glad it's happening now so we can slow down the spread. I know we can't fully stop it but as long as we're slowing it down it will be safer for our kids and our community.
1: A lot of people have been saying that you know the Biden administration now is finally sending out masks and other things to supposedly out into the world that we're going to have access to and it seems like That is in direct response to everything that the students and teachers have been doing across the U.S. So it seems like not only on a local level, but on a national level, you all have had a huge impact.
2: Yes, I've also been hearing about kids in France and kids in Chicago and New York, L.A., just like all across the country. And it's very inspiring to see them just fighting for what they need to feel safe in their communities.
1: Adults listening to this either... If they're in a position at a school or if they're just listening and maybe they're not even thinking about kids at school or kids in general, what message would you relay to them?
2: I feel like you need to think that kids aren't just interacting at school. We do go get snacks at the store. We go buy groceries. We go to doctor's appointments. We go to the library. So if we catch COVID at school, not only are we spreading it to our classmates, but we're probably spreading it to somebody you know or just to yourself as well if you're in contact with a student that does have COVID so this doesn't just impact our schools it impacts our entire communities especially since a lot of high schoolers already have jobs if you're going to a restaurant that they work at you're going grocery shopping and they're a cashier and they're tested positive with COVID you could get infected as well.
1: What do you hope to happen on, uh, Tuesday? Is this a strike that's gonna go on for a set amount of days or is it just a one day thing?
2: We're just trying to go on strike until cases go down because schools being open is a big thing that's causing the spread, um, you know, get, um, just spread around faster around our communities. We're also trying to just, you know, just feel safe. That feeling of safety for our kids is very important. I understand, again, there's a mask uh, test shortage. This district can't do much until, you know, people in higher power, you know, just give us more tests for the kids. But if we don't go to school, I feel like it will spread down. I mean, uh, slow down the spread a bit more.
1: Well, anything else you want to say or talk about? Where can people go to get more information about the strike or can they follow updates somewhere online?
2: So, on our Instagram, we do post a few updates. It's OUSD um, Student Strike. And on our Twitter, um, I know that updates are a bit more frequent there than they are on Instagram, just because it takes a bit longer to make posts on Instagram. So, go follow OUSD Strike on Twitter as well. Um, I also wanted to put a quick message out there. um if you believe that we shouldn't close down schools because only sick people with disabilities or illnesses are dying, I wanna point out that's eugenics. And that argument is not valid in my eyes and in many people's eyes. So I just wanted to point that out because I see it being used a lot to keep schools open. And you're practically saying that my baby sister should die so we can keep schools open and not lose money. Let's also not forget that long COVID is a thing. Even if you do have COVID mildly, it could affect a lot of things. You can I had vertigo, so that means I was fainting and dizzy. That was during my recovery when I was negative from COVID. If you're a sin female at birth, it can affect your menstrual cycle as well. If you have asthma, I've seen firsthand from my family members with asthma that You do struggle a lot. You do have a lot of asthma attacks. Even if your asthma is mild, it can affect that a lot. If you struggle with migraines like I do, the migraines are amplified as well. So even if you're, even if you're sick with COVID and you're not feeling too bad, do remember that the recovery is still something you have to think about especially if you do already have existing um, health problems, even if they are very minor.
1: Well, thank you so much for joining us. Good luck on Tuesday and everything else that you all are doing. It's definitely having a, a massive impact.
2: Yes, thank you.
0: Class, to organize I believe the methods will arrive Revolution will rise And decolonize It is time to mobilize In our world, the world is solution Starvation in our faces <laughs> Looking corruption The battle goes on The struggle moves on I'm telling you help to the system It is time to break those chains And liberate our minds Help to the system It is time to break those chains And liberate our minds Liberate our minds Liberate our minds Liberate minds Zabalaza Si is mi Si is nikke de tina Y, minyaka, y minyaka. Si bochi Si konkli u Zabalaza Zabalaza Si is Si is nikke All
1: right, once again, we're back for another week. As always, lots to talk about, lots in the news. We're going to be starting off here talking about the wave of sick out strikes, teacher walk-offs. There's also been lots of protests at different, uh, largely like businesses, pizzerias over COVID, uh, students are organizing massive walkouts of their schools. And this is interesting on a lot of levels. The first is that, in my opinion, this is the first sort of like mass articulation of mass refusal, mass anger, uh, coming from below since the George Floyd uprising in, t- in 2020. Uh, students and teachers across the board are rejecting Basically, the status quo of how the state is reacting to the Omicron variant. So right now, in case you're living under a rock and you don't understand what's going on in terms of COVID, uh, there is a mass, mass upswing in the amount of people being infected with the Omicron variant. They're saying the the infection rates are are double what they were under the last variant. So what's happening is a couple things. Uh, the first is that the amount of people being infected is going up extra, astronomically. Like if you see graphs, it's just like, like the graph is just like going up. It's just like a huge spike. The other thing is that the hospitals are filling up. And because so many nurses and other people have either they are sick themselves or they have been laid off. Or they've just walked off the job as part of this great resignation. They said, we just can't do this anymore. The hospitals are short-staffed, and it's hard for people even in some instances to get things like just basic testing. Like That's another big thing is a lot of people are having an issue getting a rapid test. So there's that. And then the other thing is that we are in the midst of kids going back to school after the winter break. So, right when there's this huge explosion of Omicron infections, kids are going back to school. And a lot of teachers and students are pushing back against this, because you remember a couple months ago, uh people were doing online instruction, which, I mean, by all accounts, totally sucks. I've talked to kids, you know, in my neighborhood. There's a lot of anger over that. You know, people don't like the online stuff, but at the same time, the idea of basically being forced into these, you know, confined spaces, whether it's like getting on a bus to go to school, sitting in the classroom eating lunch, you know, like in the LA school district, which is a massive school district, they did a test, uh, before kids went back, like tens of thousands, I think upwards of about 70,000 people, both teachers and students tested positive for Omicron. So imagine that across the country, you have tens of thousands of people flooding back into these school districts that are testing positive. I mean, how easy is it for students and kids to infect each other and kids, especially too, like, even if they're just carrying the virus, if they're sharing um, no symptoms, because remember a lot of kids haven't been able to get the, any sort of um, inoculation yet. They haven't been able to get the vaccine or there is no vaccine to give them because they're so young. They can potentially give it to teachers who then can take it back to their families and then spread it amongst their, their community. So, I mean, this is a mass spreading event, potentially sending kids back to school and, when you factor into, uh, the equation that like, you know, double the amount of people getting infected, even if the number of deaths is lower than it was before, if the infection rate is double or higher, then you're going to have the same amount of deaths and a lot of people are dying still. I mean, we're already upwards now of almost 900,000 people if we haven't already reached that number, which is devastating. Um, like there was somebody that stated something on Twitter, like if you're, if you're in your twenties now, like more people have died now because of the coronavirus in the United States than have died because of like murder your entire life, which is just a devastating number. I mean, that's just, it's real. So what's been happening? Well, starting in Chicago, there was a mass sick out. So a sick out is when basically a group of workers, instead of basically going on strike through their union, they basically all call out sick at the same time. So it's essentially like a wildcat strike, but you're kind of using the law to kind of get around, like calling an official strike. So all these teachers call out on strike. Well, what happened is, is that Lori Lightfoot, who's the Democratic mayor of Chicago, said this is an illegal wildcat strike and said, you know, we're going to basically come down hard on you and we're going to force you back to work. So the union and the mayor basically sat down and they fought with each other. And now they basically forced the teachers to, to go back to work. And actually the Biden administration came out and said like we agree with the mayor. And what's even more ironic is that in the midst of these uh these conversations between the mayor and the union, the mayor came out and said that she in fact had been infected with COVID nineteen. So it just kinda like shows the degree of just how far this thing is spreading. So in in the so while this is happening, the kids said, Well like, no, fuck this. We're going to push back on this, and we're going to organize our own sick-out strike, and we're going to organize this massive walkout. And then you had – at the same time as this is going on, this revolt spreads then to the school district in New York, and you had a massive system-wide walkout – Thousands of kids walked out. I mean, there were photos of just like empty, you know, cafeterias and stuff, kids walking out through different cities across the system there. And then in the Bay Area you had sick out strikes in both San Francisco and Berkeley. And this is have or sorry, San Francisco and Oakland. And also as we speak right now, there are planning there are plans in the works of students to hold uh, strikes and walkouts and other demonstrations. And a lot of students, what they're doing is they're issuing a set of demands and they're saying, you know, we want, you know, uh, N95 masks. We want proper PPE and we want rapid testing and we want to return to at home instruction. So through the computer. So we're seeing this massive organizational push by workers and students. So different sectors of the working class, uh, organizing themselves in large parts outside of the existing structures. And they're coming right up against the Democratic Party. So the Democratic Party is the one now with the stick, saying, like, no, you need to go back to work. You need to go back to school. We don't care if people are dying. What's important is the economy. What's important is that GDP continues to trickle upwards. What's important is that, you know, there not be an economic crisis. What's important is that the supply chains get fixed And so on and so forth. And in fact, like, even, you know, this the beloved Dr. Fauci has said, like, we need people to go back to school because we've got to get people to go back to work. So, I mean, they're being very clear about why all this is happening. And I think the other aspect of why this is interesting is because it really exposes just how stupid and silly and removed from reality just the far right is in all of this. Because remember, before all this was really happening, the loudest people in the room around sort of the mask and school mandate debate has really been, like, you know, your local QAnon nut or, like, group of Proud Boys that want to go to the the school board and scream about, you know, Adrenochrome or 1776 or, you know, this is communism because you're forcing my kid to wear a mask, you know, all this, like, just batshit stuff that, like, now, like, in the face of, like, mass working class activity just seems so far removed from reality. And it's, and also, too, it's like, those, those protests still are happening in some isolated pockets, but they're just so small compared to what's going on on a massive scale across the country now that's changing this entire week, which just shows you how removed those people really are from, like, the mass of working people and, like, the self-organizing that's going on and people, Seeing what's happening and being like, yeah, I want to do that. Like just as we were starting to record, an article came out saying that there's going to be a sick out or there's going to be a walkout by students in Seattle tomorrow, which is a massive school district. It's the biggest one in Washington state. So, I mean, this is a big deal. Uh, and I I encourage people to get involved in this, like support the students, support the teachers, get in where you fit in, whether that's showing up with a sign, doing mutual aid or also, too, just expanding these strikes, these active these acts of collective refusal as much as you can. And in a lot of instances, like this is stuff like kids like going to school for the first period and then like ditching the rest of the day, not showing it up at all. Like in New York, the first day that people returned, 300,000 kids just did not go to school. Like parents are literally taking their kids out of the classroom in a lot of instances. I mean, a lot of it's just people. Walking off the job, just saying like, I'm not going to do this work. I'm not going to put myself and my family in harm's way for the economy. If all the stuff is on the table, like where can this go? Like what are the other autonomous initiatives that people can engage in to not only support these struggles, but also push them as farther, as far as they can go and also push back against the state and its attempts to basically rein everybody in because that's exactly what's happening.
3: Yeah. I mean, the, I think the thing that strikes me most here. Now, I'm just looking at at some of the numbers, right? So like 845,000 people have died as of today from COVID. The total U.S. population is 329 million, right? So that means that roughly one in every 350 people have died from COVID. And something like one out of every five people have gotten COVID, right? That's an astronomical number, an astronomical number, and the numbers aren't going down, right? And so it's not like the situation is getting better. And so I want us all to think back to the summer of 2020, um, which feels like it was about 8 million years ago. But the summer of 2020, um, we did an episode where we were talking about Greg Abbott, the governor of Texas, um, starting to talk about people going back to work. And, it, and someone asked him the question, like, well, that means a lot of people are going to die. And he said something like, well, if I've got to die to save the U.S. economy, then I'm willing to take that risk, right? And we were like, oh, well, of course. They're like demanding that we go die for capitalism, to go save capitalism from itself. And that was true then. And what was interesting is at the time, plenty of Democratic politicians were saying something not quite that radical, but a more moderate version of the same thing, which is, Really, we all need to stay home. People are going to die if we don't. The Republicans are really screwing up COVID response. You know, it's irresponsible to make people go back, blah, blah, blah. And then Joe Biden runs a presidential campaign based on this ridiculously naive notion that if he gets elected, there's going to be this return to normality. And the Democratic Party ha- has taken that on as their default politics, or at least the moderate wing of the Democratic Party, which nationally sort of runs the party, um, kind of took on this position that everything was going back to normal and are trying to sell that to the American people, right? When tried to do that during the presidential campaign, they continued to try to do that afterwards. They were like, oh, Biden's in office. Look how much better COVID's getting, which... The numbers weren't actually changing all that much, and um, but now we're getting into midterm time, and so I can there's a commonality here that is really important to I think point out, um, and it's not being pointed out in. In fact, I I have yet to read a single analysis piece which talks about this. Um, when Trump was in office, there was very clearly an attempt to either completely deny the existence of or downplay the severity of the pandemic. Um, That attempt got more and more and more acute the closer and closer we got to the election. Because what was happening is that Trump was trying to convince people that everything was okay and that they had solved the problem, right? And so if the situation was getting worse, very obviously they couldn't have that argument fly and at least, if the statistics are to be believed, there's at least a chunk of Americans that voted against Trump because of the, the COVID response and how poor it was. Um, but now Biden's in office, right? When Biden gets into office, all of a sudden, the tune of every moderate Democrat in the country changes. And they all start talking about how things are getting better. The economy is recovering. Less people are dying. So on, so on, which, you know, was somewhat the case, but not in any meaningful way. Um, and now here we are in a situation in which the Democrats are coming forward and they've been trying to argue for the last year that they fixed the problem, it's done. Like, they fixed it. They they solved the pandemic. They fixed all the problems of Donald Trump. We're back to normal. When very obviously that's not true. And so their entire midterm strategy is grounded in the idea that we're back to normal now. And very obviously we're not back to normal now. And not only are we not back to normal, but there's a sense in which we are drifting further and further and further into the pandemic reality, right? The fact that the Democratic Party now are the ones sitting there saying, well, y'all need to go back to work. Y'all need to go back to school. And they're saying that with a straight face is something every single person in this country should call them to account for. Right. The fact of the matter is, is now they are taking on exactly the same position that they criticize the Republicans for. Exactly the same one in a situation that's equally as dangerous for the same cynical political reason. And that, as far as I'm concerned, is absolutely unacceptable. Right. I mean, we've had this discussion for a while during the pandemic, you know, and and there's this kind of divergence between like the way a lot of anarchists in the U.S. are approaching the pandemic versus the way a lot of like anarchists in Europe are approaching the pandemic. And the, and the, the politics around the pandemic are very different. But in the States, the way that we've been talking about this this whole time is, sure, the government is telling us to wear masks and do social distancing, but that's just a smart idea. And we can see how much that was actually the argument that people embraced, that it wasn't that we were just doing it because the cops are telling us we had to. It's that a lot of Americans were, were taking safety measures because they wanted to stay safe. And now that the state is telling us to do the opposite, people are still choosing safety right? That on some level, the response to the pandemic in the US was really fascinating in the sense that um, through the combination of mutual aid projects, and this sort of sense that we were kind of on our own during the pandemic, what's happened is we sort of built a mentality seemingly in a lot of parts of the US where, well, if the Democrats are going to tell us to go back to work, we're just going to tell them to, you know, shove it and just not go back to work. And we're going to stay safe, even if they don't want us to. Um, that's a really interesting shift. Like, that's a very interesting shift. And I would argue that that's almost unique in the world. Um, there are probably a few other places that are like that. I think in New Zealand, things, the dynamics are somewhat similar, but like, that's not the case in most of the world. And so what we're seeing right now is we're really watching students and teachers being forced to take, you know, essentially autonomous direct action. In the face of people that are supposed to be, at least ostensibly, trying to court their votes, going at them and trying to force them into dangerous situations, right? Um, as far as I'm concerned, nobody should be taking risks that they don't want to take. And if that means we have to shut every workplace and school in this country down, then that's what we have to do. But the reality is, is that none of us need to go die for capitalism. And if capitalism dies as a result of us refusing to go back to work, then so be it. Because if the reality of capitalism is that we have to put ourselves in deadly circumstances so the economy can survive, the economy is the problem. It's not us, right? We always have to keep that in mind. And so for all these students that are going out there and doing this stuff, like, keep it up. Like, you all are, you know, you're showing a lot of other people the way right now. You're the ones leading the charge, not us, right? Not us, like, old fogies in our late 30s, right? Right? We're not the ones leading the charge on this. Y'all are. So keep it up. You're doing a wonderful job. And do only what you think you should, right? If the government tries to force you to go back, become ungovernable. That's just the solution right now. And so big ups for everyone that's out there. Um, Keep it up. This is a really important struggle, um, more so than I think a lot of people are giving it credit for.
1: Yeah, totally. And if you are involved in organizing uh walkouts or strikes, and you want to come on and talk about what's happening in your area, please get a hold of us, shoot us an email, yep. shoot us a message on social media. We'd love to hear from you. And, yeah, with that, let's go on to the next thing. You know, we wanted to talk about this refrain that we've heard on both the left and the, especially the right, Uh, you know, this past weekend with Patriot Front attempting mm-hmm. to march in Chicago and then being shut down and then running back to their cars <laughs> and then oh. just just seeing so many people on the right call them feds you know like people like people like uh the idiots at like the gateway pundit who are like buddy buddy with nick fuentes and like those white nationalists but these white nationalists that march to unite the right they're feds right okay it's just so silly you know this group that's like been written about and studied like since its existence, like Patriot Front grew out of like the same place mm-hmm. where Heimbach nerded out and all the people that went on to form Adam Waffen. That's yep. where they started. Anti fascists literally scraped that entire thing. You can go and read <laughs> through all the messages if you want. You can see how all those groups developed. Like, yep. you know, you had American Vanguard, which remember they turned into Vanguard America after one of their mm-hmm. leaders messaged it's going down and said, I am willing to sell out other people if you take down my information. I don't know if people remember this, but there was a group called American Vanguard and they were doxed by some anti-fascist group and they messaged it's going down. Like, please, please take down my information. And we said, well, sure, but you got to give us information about other people. And they did. And they, they basically snitched on, uh, Mike Enoch and all of them. Uh-huh. And they were totally ostracized from the movement. <laughs> and so so that group, and their whole claim to fame is they would go into bars and they would tell people that their their flag was like something for veterans, and they'd get people to to pose with them, and they'd blur their faces so they would they would attempt to make their group look larger, brilliant yeah. strategy by the way, anyway, so they went from American Vanguard to Vanguard America, and that's the group that marched in Charlottesville and was part of the nationalist front i mean literally this group just got deposed during the Charlottesville trial. Like um, Thomas Rousseau was up on the stand as a leader within that organization. And then after Charlottesville, lo and behold, they decided to rebrand once again. And as we chronicled and it's going down, when we outed Thomas Rousseau, he basically said like, we're starting a new group. If you want to be a part of it, you know, message me and we're going to, change our name to Patriot Front, and then all the people in Vanguard America went on to Patriot Front. And then lo and behold, we have the group that we have today that's known for putting up posters and marching around cities in unannounced, you know, nighttime marches and taking photos of themselves like they're badasses. Yeah. And I don't know, it's we could spend a whole podcast too about watching their numbers decline and kind of what that means. But it's just fascinating that this charge of them being feds is suddenly, like, the way to, like, denounce people. And also, too, it's it's so interesting because we are watching this January 6th thing play out. And, like, just today, like, as we're recording this, Stuart Rhodes is being indicted on, um you know, sedition charges. And, like, somebody on Twitter today, and no offense if this is you if you're listening, but they – said like isn't aren't the oath keepers an op or something like that and that's kind of what spurred this is you know even on the left you hear these type of things and we wanted to just kind of take a moment and talk about just kind of like how silly that is and how far removed from the actual nature of the state and the actual way that infiltration and even just state disruption of movements be they far right or on the left um actually is i mean they
3: <laughs> we could do an entire podcast about conspiracy theories and like how conspiracy theories work and what their mechanics are. Um, but in this very specific discussion, um, we can kind of see this in a microcosm. Right. And, and it's one of these discussions, which like we see variants of this on the quote left a lot. Uh, we see both like fed jacketing, but also the kind of outside agitator narrative, which is deeply connected to that. Um, We saw that getting leveraged by Democrats during the uprising in 2020, right? Claiming that we were all outside agitators, professional anarchists and like all this stuff, right? But on the right wing, something similar is happening in which like now all of a sudden it's a bad thing to be a Fed, right? I mean, these are the same people who fly Blue Lives Matter flags, right? So um, we can never give the right wing credit for being consistent about much of anything. But what's happening is something really similar. And And I want to kind of dive into what conditions those things sort of emerge from, um, and ultimately why those assumptions are really errant. And so all of these arguments about federal infiltration, about provocateurs, about all this stuff, have roots, right? Um, We can go back in the United States, obviously, to COINTELPRO. We can go back even to the early 20th century. I mean, we can even go back to the time before the American Revolution, where there was... Lots of subterfuge and lots of espionage going on back and forth. There were lots of sabotage actions. There were lots of people ratting each other out. Um, there is a deep, deep, deep core of American politics that's really, really heavily grounded in paranoia. Um, not always bad paranoia, but paranoia, right? Always this, you know, mysterious outside threat or something like that. And historically, for people that have been involved in radical politics, the state has been that malicious force, right? We have experienced infiltration. We have experienced entrapment. Um, however, one of the things that doesn't happen is provocation, right? And I'll get into why in a second, right? So, like Italy is a, a an exception here, right? I don't want to, for a second, make the argument that that you know um, the strategy of tension wasn't a real thing. It, it was in Italy after World War II. Uh, but that was a really unique circumstance, right? And so what we're watching in these moments is we're watching this kind of mistrust of the state, which has plenty of historical roots, metastasize. Um, it starts to move in directions which become really damaging. So, for example, one of the things that you see a lot, both on the right now and what you've seen in our circles traditionally, is that people will leverage the idea that someone's a fad when they disagree with the tactics that they use. So pacifists do this constantly, right? Um, They'll say, oh, well, this happened after J20, after the Trump's inauguration. Um, All over Facebook, liberals were saying, oh, well, those people couldn't have been against Trump. They must have been feds, white nationalists, name whatever malicious other entity, right? Um, Alex Jones claimed that every anarchist at the G20 in Pittsburgh in 2009 was a fed. Right. Uh, we see this narrative pop up all the time. So in this narrative, something different happens. So we take what we know historically. So historically, we know that the federal government has engaged in infiltration. We know that they have escalated inter-organizational conflicts. Right. We know that they have concocted plans and entrapped people before those plans come to fruition. But what they've never done, for example, at least in the recent past, is intentionally cause the situation to spin out of control. There's a basic reason why. So without getting too deep into this whole discussion of of statecraft and policing, suffice to say that for police to operate, for laws to function, those laws have to be enforced as universally as possible, right? Obviously, if laws are not getting enforced, people stop obeying them, right? And so if no one's ever getting arrested for shoplifting, laws against shoplifting stop existing, essentially, right? If no one ever gets arrested for graffiti, there's really no laws against graffiti in a practical sense, right? And so laws function based on enforcement. But we know that numerically and logistically, the police are spectacularly limited in the amount of ground that they can cover. They might have a lot of firepower. They might have a lot of logistical support. They might have advanced communications. They might have all of these things. But on the level of what they can see at any given point, if you really compare the square footage of visibility to the square footage of their coverage area, it's very small. And so the way the police have to function is they have to project force through space. And they project force through space in such a way as to contain and de-escalate conflicts so they can maintain a tactical upper hand. Now, if we take a situation like January 6th, right, like let's just use January 6th as our example, which is One of these situations where even people like Ted Cruz are accusing the FBI of provoking what happened on January 6th. Very clearly, a lot of cops got injured that day. That did not end well for the states. That didn't end well very specifically because the amount of force that was able to be leveraged by the crowd exceeded the ability of the police on the ground to contain that force in some very basic way. Right? They couldn't contain the conflict, they couldn't de-escalate the conflict. For those of us that are anarchists that have been in DC before, we know what it looks like for them to contain and de-escalate a conflict. Right? What they do when we're marching in DC is they surround you with motorcycles, they march you through the streets, and then at least back in the day, they used to just like force you to go into a subway station so you would leave. Right? When situations do sort of escalate, generally, and you can see this in riot control tactics. Police will pull out to a wide area, they will control points of interest that they need to control, and then they will slowly but surely surround the crowd, push it into a smaller, smaller and smaller space, limit their ability to continue to act, and slowly de-escalate them until they leave. Right? That's not always how it feels when you're on the ground. Right? Um, de-escalation can look like getting tear gassed, um, because that gets you to leave. Right. But at the end of the day, every single piece of crowd control literature, every single piece of literature about policing, every single piece about literature about statecraft, law enforcement, so on is grounded in this idea that fundamentally what they are trying to do is they are trying to de-escalate conflict. Now, there are basic roots to this, right? Very obviously states need to continue to operate. Really, their sole operating purpose is their own continuation. And if conflict expands and accelerates, that continuation gets threatened, right? If conflict accelerates outside of the control of police on the ground, that continuation gets threatened. And this is why, when we look at actual moments that cut right up to the line of provocation, right? So I'm thinking things like the Cleveland 4 case, or even the case with those guys up in Michigan right now, Uh, and and there's been dozens of these cases in the Muslim community, right? Right? Um, there's always something really common amongst all those cases, which is that that whole time, even though the feds are trying to escalate a certain group of people to do a thing, they're completely in control of the whole situation. And they always stop stuff before it actually happens.
1: Just the idea. I mean, whether it's like in a situation of J six or the uprising in Minneapolis is just so absurd. Like, I mean, Go to J6. I mean, like, when you hear these people talk about, like, who instigated what, I mean, their whole kind of, like, argument is that, like, some evil undercover antifa or FBI agent was, like, the one that broke the window and that somehow enticed the crowd. Yeah. That's not how these things happen. Well, and and we have to think
3: about what we're reinforcing in those narratives, right? And, like, anarchists have, like, provocatory narratives all the time. They're less common these days. Uh, but I'll tell you, like, 10 years ago, um, just constantly. just con- It wasn't like people are infiltrating us. It's that like people are provoking us to do things, right? Um, we There were infiltrators, right? Um, I'm sure there are now. But for those of us that were around 10, 15 years ago, like, there were infiltrators a lot. And um, so there was a reason to be paranoid and scared. But they were never provoking. So what, what we're reinforcing when we're sort of... Um, taking on that narrative is we're kind of reinforcing a number of things which which are deeply problematic the first is is that this entire narrative comes out of early 20th century crowd control or uh, crowd theory right crowd behavior theory where at the time there was this general theory that when humans get into crowds all of a sudden they lose their agency just magically it just goes away and they become these kind of passive beings that are just able to be swayed by emotion right now, of course, what that posits is that people in crowds are sort of unthinking emotional beasts, right? And we have to think in the early 20th century, who was forming crowds at the time that these theories were being developed in elite institutions and academia? Well, it was unions. It was anti-racist protesters. It was uh, suffragettes, Right. It was people that were out there that, you know, for better or worse, more or less effectively were trying to challenge things. Um, that crowds were this kind of expression of the ability to mobilize. And so the way that crowd theory developed is it developed in these kind of academic contexts, it, which were funded by the wealthy, often populated. The jobs are populated by people that come from wealth. And so this idea that these smart people in academia can write about the unthinking masses was something that was just assumed. So every single time we talk about this idea that because one person throws a brick at something, everyone just loses their mind, essentially what we're doing is we're reinforcing this concept that we are mindless emotional beasts, which is a notion that comes out of the arrogance of early 20th century capitalism more than anything else right? And that's something none of us should enforce. Um, it delegitimizes direct action. It delegitimizes the ability of people to get together to take direct action. And it makes us all into these kind of passive entities. I mean, I will say one thing, like, there are a lot of people in the social movements that are, kind of, operate more or less passively. I mean, you see this with liberals a lot, but you know, my time in in anarchy world, uh, there's a lot of stuff you can say about anarchists, but uh, w- being passive is not one of them. Um, the idea that every single time there's violence or destruction, that that was sort of an unintentional action of a manipulated person is not only really insulting, but it delegitimizes our ability to act in our own self-defense against the state. Um, and that's something that we have to preserve. We have to preserve the ability to defend ourselves. We have to preserve the ability to fight, right, to claim that every single act of fighting is the result of government provocation um, is to delegitimize fighting. At that point, you might as well just drop out of political organizing and just go vote all the time. Um, But ultimately, it has two really damaging kind of internal effects on sort of our communities very specifically. And the first is that this idea of, of provocateurs is a tactic which has been very intentionally leveraged by... You know, last summer it was the Democrats, right? Now it's the right wing. Um, or in, in the summer of 2020 it was the Democrats and now it's the right wing doing this. And, um, all of that is emotional manipulation, right? When Democratic mayors and police chiefs in Democratic cities were coming out in May of 2020 and saying, all of these people are professional anarchists, all of these people are out-of-town agitators, which is equivalent to all of these people are provocateurs, what they were essentially trying to claim is, if it wasn't for these troublemakers, none of the people in my city would be mad at me for failing to prevent the cops from murdering them. And it allowed emotional manipulation to function as a way to absolve politicians of their accountability. Um, internally when this happens, it tends to function in such a way as to leverage emotional manipulation in order to marginalize X, Y, or Z group of people. Um, I mean, you know, there have been many groups of people in, in the anarchist community over the years that I have felt were deeply problematic. Um, I've even been involved in writing pieces about some of them because I thought that their actions were incredibly dangerous, but not once did I ever call those people provocateurs. It is entirely possible for people to make tactical decisions that you might think are wrong. And part of this whole fight for autonomy is to allow people the space for that, right? So to manipulate people emotionally fundamentally prevents that space from existing. We end up engaging in what is a toxic emotional engagement, which fundamentally limits our ability to fight. And at the end of the day, all it does is functionally breed mistrust. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't be looking for feds. I'll be the first person to tell everyone I should be looking for feds everywhere um, because they can be everywhere. And in my experience, they tend to be in a lot of places that I've happened to be in my life, right? Um, but one of the things I've never seen a fed do ever, not once, is encourage people to take more violent action in a moment where they could actually do it. So they'll do that in a bubble. They'll do that in the, quote, preparation for something. They'll do that as a way to entrap people. But it never happens on the ground. And the reason it never happens on the ground is exactly because when you escalate situations and that opening is created and people in their own intentional actions decide to manifest their rage in that opening, that creates a situation that's uncontrollable. And what we've seen time and time again here So let's take the G20 in Pittsburgh in 2009, or let's even look at January 6th. In both of those situations, or hell, most of the riots in the summer of 2020, all of those situations have one thing in common. In all of those situations, the ability of people on the street to mobilize conflict exceeded the ability of the police to contain it. And in all of those situations, the cops, at least temporarily, were run entirely off the streets. That is not something a state is going to intentionally do. And so we're watching this happen on the right wing right now. I mean, ironically, Stuart Rhodes uh, had been confronted at CPAC on camera by some random griper who was like, how does it feel to be a federal informant? And he like challenged this like kid. I mean, this kid must be like 18 to a fight. Stuart Rhodes is like 50, right? Probably older than that. And he just got arrested today. The, whole, the kid's whole argument is you must be a fed because you haven't been indicted yet. Well, here it is. He gets indicted today. Right? We need to cut that talk of provocateurs. We need to look at what it's doing to the right wing. We can look at this now. We can look and see how they're tearing each other to shreds and using this accusation to do so. We need to be able to look at that and see how those things manifest in our own communities. right? We need to be able to maintain suspicion. I would even argue that paranoia is not inherently a bad thing in measure right? It is important to look for feds. It is important to call people out on dangerous behavior. All of that is true. But to call people a provocateur is to imply something very different and very damaging. And that's really where we need to be incredibly careful.
1: Another thing I feel like we haven't talked about in a while, I'll just remind people, you know, another tactic we've seen again and again is that people will get arrested and then the FBI will go to them you know, while they're in lockup, but they're getting out and said like, Hey, you got arrested on this, you know, light offense or whatever. We can make this go away. But what we'd like you to do is we'd like you to basically have an open channel with us and, you know, tell us about other protests that are coming up or like, you know, Mm -hmm. basically just tell us what's going on in the scene or the movement or whatever. And, you know, every once in a while, those people would get, um, you know, calls or they'd get hit up about different demonstrations. There was actually, uh, a woman that went to the mass mobilization against the neo-Nazis in Sacramento in 2016 that actually came forward after the demonstration and said, I was approached by the FBI to go to stuff like this and then, you know, report back to them. And I basically ended up refusing. And there's a lot of – um a lot of examples of stuff like that, of people basically being approached by the FBI. I don't know if you remember that Michael Moore documentary, uh, Boeing uh, for Columbine, I think it was, where there's just one kind of clip where they talk about this small peace group in central California, I believe it was Fresno, and it was just like a group of kind of like peace activists, and they found, they found out after one of their members, or somebody they believe was a member, died in a motorcycle accident that he was actually a police officer. And this is like right after nine 11, this is like 2003 or something like that. And yeah. he had just been in a fly on the wall. He, you know, presented himself as like an ex military guy that was questioning the war. And he was basically just in there and he was just writing notes about stuff. And, you know, they were engaging in like vigils and prayer breakfasts and, and, you know, protests and stuff like that. It was nothing illegal, but then of course he, he wasn't there necessarily to find the illegal thing. He was there to just surveil them and see if anybody popped up, you know? And that's something well, there's it, a, there's a really great uh, essay that's in a murder of crows that came out like, you know, in 2006 yeah. or something. That's like old as old as shit. Murder of
3: <laughs> crows was awesome, by the way, for people that want something cool to check out. It was yeah. Great.
1: great essay called, uh, Uh, Repression as state strategy, and what it says Uh is that the difference between how liberals look at repression and the way that anarchists look at repression is that anarchists understand that repression is a constant counterinsurgency method against the resistance that that just happens all the time, and that repression is a constant, and it's baked into the state. Liberals think that repression is something that happens when somebody goes out of line or does something bad. Essentially, it's the state either reacting or sometimes overreacting to something, but it's because it steps out of its bounds or... Mm-hmm. you know some something happens basically it's it's a it 's a reaction, and that they can basically sidestep that by staying within the bounds of the law and appealing to reason of established leaders and so on and so forth, making society progress mm-hmm. into the kind of world that they want. And we know that that's bullshit, that the structures of power are there to basically enforce racial and wealth inequalities and to keep it that way. And that Mm -hmm. repression is basically there to find those pockets of resistance and smash them, not necessarily because they're there to stop terrorism or violence or something. I mean, if anything, I think that the rebellion and the growth of the fascist right should, like, lay that plane. I mean, look what Mm -hmm. happened on J6 it wasn't like those people were hiding what they wanted to do. Like they were in chat chat rooms and Facebook groups across the country talking about murdering elected officials and killing Antifa and, and throwing Black Lives Matter people out of the helicopters. I mean, this is what they were doing twenty-four seven. And there was a slow escalation. I mean, for God's sakes, in Michigan, they literally planned to murder, you know, an elected official. And in, in Portland, they were talking about killing Ted Wheeler openly. They were you know, people in like Patriot Prayer and these groups would have you know, Facebook live events where they would talk about that. You know, for them, like they, they face no repercussions for that kind of speech. So they did it all the time. And when we do
3: see provocation by the feds, like historically, right? So there is one instance in which provocation does happen, right? We saw this during COINTELPRO. It's when the feds use, say, fake letters or infiltrators to provoke violent action against other groups. Um, We saw this really consistently with the FBI provoking violence against the Black Panther Party, trying to get other organizations to attack Black Panthers. Um, and, and that did happen. Uh, I th- in fact, a couple of Panthers were killed. I, I forget the name of the organization, but it was in Los Angeles that it happened, uh, where, where some Panthers were killed. That was provoked by a fake letter that, that was sent from the FBI. That does happen. But if we notice in all of those situations, it was never the fake letter says, go attack a police station, right? Or the fake, the, the provocation is not fed in a protest, throws a rock at a line of police. It's, hey, people, why don't you go shoot each other? And so when provocation is being used, which there's no record of it being used in the recent past, right? Um, but when it does get used in this way when they do that, they're using the violence of one organization as a repression technique, right? What they're not doing is they're not using that provoked violence to escalate conflict against the state, right? These are the kinds of things that, you know, we we, we see concurrent arguments all the time when an action goes wrong and all of a sudden, oh, it's because the uh, federal strategies of repression aren't that complicated. They don't have to be. Right? Um, every single question mark, gray area in a strategy for the state is a place where things can go wrong. And if you are an entity which continues its existence through the ability to contain conflict, the ability for things to go wrong is a significant problem that you're trying to mitigate constantly, not exacerbate. Right? Now, we can see this on the level of just like basic statecraft theory. If we really look at, I mean, we can see this in Carl Schmidt. We can see this in Foucault, right? Um, the state is not, as we view it, as many people view it, an institution of warfare necessarily. It manifests as war, right? We live in constant social warfare, but that war is being mobilized by the state in order to end itself. That at the end of the day, the state functions best when there's no conflict. The state functions best when there's nobody in the streets. The state functions best when there's no resistance. right? Ultimately, the role of the police is pacification. It's not exacerbation, but it's pacification. It's to stop us from fighting. It's to make us go home. It's to stop us from being angry. Right? It's essentially to institute peace. You know, when I was a senior in college, I wrote uh, my graduate thesis or my my master's thesis about this. And the argument I made is that for years I considered myself a peace activist, right? I mean, an anarchist, yes, but um, as an anti-war activist, right? As someone who was primarily involved in the anti-war movement. Um, as time went on and I dealt with police repression more and more, um, what became incredibly clear to me is that this attempt to stop all conflict and formalize life within really, really, really specific lines, which is what is required for there to be, quote, peace, right? The absence of conflict. Uh, it requires sameness, right? It requires non-difference. Um, at the point in which that's the case, in some way, none of us should be anti-war activists. We should be against states fighting wars. But what we're watching here is we're watching the state constantly mobilize warfare in order to end conflict. Or at least that's what they're attempting to do. That's what statecraft theory necessitates. Um, to, to think that they're going to sit there and exacerbate and provoke things um, is an absurd notion. And so, it, this is—it's sort of like you know we we're before the show, before we start recording, and and for a, a few days we've been talking a lot about um, conspiracy theories around things like security tools, right? Like Signal or Tor. Um, and not to get too long winded about this just really briefly um, every single time I've heard someone come to me and say the encryption and signal is broken it's because of a conspiracy theory it's not actually the case when people come in and say Tor got funding from the military so it's compromised It sure Tor was founded in the Naval Research Observatory like the Naval Research Lab like that's true um, and did have Pentagon contracts that's true um, that doesn't mean that the code that you can very easily sit there and read is backdoored or something like that. And so when we're talking about repression and when we're talking about things like infiltration, these are really touchy subjects. And they're subjects that have been manipulated by people in the past in order to gain political advantages. And that has done almost immeasurable damage to our communities over the years. Um we need to be able to look at these things and analyze them soberly and with information and not emotionally because emotionally, especially those of us that have been in confrontations with the state and suffer from trauma as a result of that. Emotionally, it does feel like you're under attack a lot of the time and it does feel like you can't trust people. Um, I myself struggle with trust issues a lot in my life after a lot of years of doing this. What I notice with these kinds of theories about getting trapped or about provocateurs on the streets, escalating situations, um, is that they often sort of emerge from a position in which something has gone wrong or you feel really anxious about something or something could go wrong. And people start coming to really sound conclusions that person has really bad operational security and they're really encouraging us to do some really bad stuff. The problem is, is that then the next step gets taken. And it's not, here's this person that's doing these things that are potentially dangerous and harmful, and we should probably disassociate ourselves from this person as a result. But it's not just that, it's that without any evidence at all, that person's a provocateur, right? That's the point in which this goes from being an entirely productive process to being a largely destructive one. And if we notice that point, and this is where conspiracy theories become really relevant, it functions in the same way that a conspiracy theory does. So we have observable realities that we all have our own interpretations of, but there's something observable. And we can start to chain bits of information together. But what happens in conspiracy theories is you then end up with a massive logical leap to a conclusion. So we can take uh, let's take the Bohemian Grove conspiracy theories as an example, which is an Alex Jones related thing, although he took it from other people. But it's like there is this campground called Bohemian Grove, I think, in Washington state where wealthy, powerful people do go to have a retreat every year. Like that's a real thing. And every year they have a bonfire and you can kind of see the bonfire from across the lake a little bit. So Alex Jones takes footage of that bonfire and he sees people moving in front of the fire and he goes, see, look at them. They're doing satanic dances in front of this fire so they can sacrifice children and that's why they don't want us in there, right? So it's observable, 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 large logical leap based on suspicion, random conclusion.
1: That's what made him famous.
3: That is absolutely what made him famous. His documentary in 1998 on Bohemian Grove is why Alex Jones is a name that we know. Right. His entire career functions on this sort of epistemic structure in which very basic observable things and arguments that I think most of us would make lead to this point where there's this massive leap to a preconceived conclusion. Right. It's not just that, you know, say an organization like the Bilderberg Group, is a real thing. Like That is a consortium of business people that meet every year and plan business strategy. That is true. The fact that it gets attached to anti-Semitic conspiracy theories is where the logical leap occurs. right? And so we need to sort of in the same way that many of us can sit there and say that's a ridiculous conspiracy theory, we need to be approaching our own internal discourses around infiltration and provocation in the same way. We need to be basing these understandings on observability. We need to be looking at situations based on what they are. For example, there have been many times in my time being involved in which someone has done something or said something that made everybody else very uncomfortable for a number of reasons. And I've had conversations with people after that, and they've been like, oh, I think that person's a fed. And I'm like, I I don't know one way or the other, but it doesn't matter. (laughs) what they did was dangerous and we need to not be working with them anymore or we at least need to be talking to them about this and i, and
1: I think that's right? a huge point that you're making and we really need to really hinder on that stop looking for the fed and focus yep. on the behavior because yep. the behavior we can change and confront and and deal with you know we we can't Prove someone is an undercover agent, you know, unless they die in a motorcycle accident that we read about in the newspaper the next
3: day, or we go to court, yeah or right, exactly. gets arrested, we go to court yeah
1: right so and and again, we should all be working to improve our behavior and the way that we talk to each other, whether it's you know dealing with internal patriarchy or n- not to sound old, but to present a good set of practices for newer folks that are coming into things
3: there are some of us in this community um myself included and and a lot of the people involved in this project that have gone through some serious stuff. I mean, we've seen some serious stuff. We've been around some serious stuff. We've watched infiltrators come and go. Um, It happens. It happens a lot. And we're not in any way saying, don't be suspicious of people. What we are saying is that in those situations, if we would have been less obsessed with who the Fed was and more focused on good communication about what our needs and limitations are most of those situations would have never happened to begin with um i think of the situation with anna very specifically this is at the g8 uh when it was in georgia and the story goes and this this showed up in an indictment uh so it i could talk about it but anna was running as a medic at the time um or pretending to be a medic and and always did she always always was a medic um and was so this g8 meeting was happening on this island off the coast of florida and the only way to the side i forget the name of the island sea island maybe the only way to this island was a bridge and of course the cops had like 600 police on the bridge so going to the bridge made no sense but anna's saying they're going we should go to the bridge let's go to the bridge and everyone else was sitting there going is this person a fed they never went wow that's a really stupid idea we should probably stop talking to this person Right, This person does this all the time. They come up with these really wing-nutty ideas all the time. Um, people didn't disassociate from Anna because they couldn't prove that Anna was an informant. But they could prove that Anna was reckless and dangerous. And the mistake that was made is that reckless and dangerous wasn't enough for people back then, or at least for some of us. right? Um, we wanted to believe that people were good. We wanted to believe that even the people that were reckless had good intentions. You know, we wanted to believe that even though they were reckless, we could still work with them. And that really the only time that we could stop, that we would have to stop working with someone is if they were a fed. And that was an errant assumption. This provocateur narrative reinforces that assumption, right? It reinforces the idea that the only risk to our security is the state and that's a simplistic understanding of our own operational security oftentimes by the point where we by the time we get to the point where the state is focusing on us they've already gathered enough information to know that they need to oftentimes that information comes from bad operational security right it's not about even infiltrators it's not about spying on our email they read facebook and twitter and so the provocateur narrative really prevents us from focusing on these fundamentals, right? Um, on the right wing right now, it's tearing the right wing to shreds. And you can even see this, like, in the Stuart Rhodes indictment, which came out today. There's this, I mean, there, there are some gems in this indictment. I, it, we'll get to talk about it in a second, hopefully. But, um, like, for example, where did they get so many golf carts? Like, they keep riding around in golf carts. It's really weird. But right early on, on January 6th, there was this moment in that they talked about in the indictment where um, people had stormed up the steps of the Capitol and some Oath Keepers were up there and someone smashed out a window and one of the Oath Keepers texts Stuart Rhodes and goes, Antifa just smashed out a window. And he goes, I'm standing right here. Those were patriots. We should be celebrating this. And immediately they started arguing about it. Immediately, right? That is what that narrative does, right? Anyone could have sat there and said, oh, this got broken. I think that that's good or bad. Right. But instead, what they did was they made the logical leap and fell into this place of accusation that distracted them from what was actually happening in front of them. That is the moment where often people end up in the most trouble. And so. This idea that, like, on the right wing, every single person that does something you don't like is, is an op now, right, is the way they put it. Like, they're all ops. Patriot Front's an op. Stuart Rhodes is an op. The Oath Keepers are an op. Like, everyone's an op on the right wing, apparently. Um, we really need to avoid that. And there were elements of that creeping in during the uprising in 2020. Um, you saw it coming from liberals mostly. And it often does come from liberals mostly. But we have to be incredibly aware, not just how those narratives play out in our immediate circles, but how those narratives shape other people's understandings of who we are. Um, I got asked by my own parents after J-20 whether or not the people that were there were all feds or white supremacists, my own parents. And I had to tell them I knew like over 100 people that got arrested at that protest. So like, no, they weren't. Um, It literally took me being able to say that to walk my otherwise incredibly rational parents off the ledge there, right? Um, It fundamentally damages our ability to be able to talk about fighting. It fundamentally damages our ability to be able to talk about security. um, And we need to be incredibly careful about it.
1: This has been the It's Going Down podcast. Check itsgoingdown.org for daily updates, columns, action reports, and news. Go to itsgoingdown.org slash shop to support us and follow us on all social media platforms. IGD, your daily resource for insurgent proletarian life.